Let's pray. I'll pray for us. Gracious Father God, we just lift before you uh, our pastor Neil and Jane, his wife. Father, please, we pray that you would strengthen their ministry in Thailand with um, Daniel and Tamami uh, Arasawa, um, our missionaries that we support here. Um, please, Father, bless their ministry amongst the Mien pastors. We pray too for ourselves, Father, that you would cut our hearts open with your word, that you would put, to, put us back together through your word, Father. May this word bring life to us because it is from you. Please use me to speak your word faithfully, boldly, uh, clearly and lovingly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, why have the Avengers movies proved to be so popular in recent years? Uh, I've been reflecting on that. What, what is it that seems to have captured the hearts and minds of so many people? And I believe their popularity comes down to one English phrase, cometh the hour, cometh the man. In the time of greatest crisis, the hour of most desperate need, true heroes emerge. People of courage and integrity, people who will face insurmountable challenges at great cost to themselves for the sake of those they love. Spoiler alert, not, not too big. Uh, if you haven't yet seen Avengers Endgame, there is a scene, a final battle, where Captain America, the superhero embodiment of all that is good and noble in life, stands alone against the evil Thanos and all of his forces. And the odds are against him, he's weary, he's injured, and it would be easy to give up. But for the good of all, he drags himself to his feet to fight one more time. Cometh the hour cometh the man. Uh, some think that this phrase uh, is attributed for the first time to Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, whose dogged resolve helped to lead the Allies through the darkest years of the Second World War and on to victory. Well, I think that phrase could have been written about Jesus, and it could have come straight from the Gospel of John, because right through the Gospel of John, we've been waiting for this hour to come, the hour of Jesus' death on the cross, the hour that is both the darkest and the brightest hour of humanity. At the cross, we see true character emerge, whether that is at its best or at its worst. And in the end, the man of courage and integrity, the hero who gives himself up for the sake of others, is Jesus. The one who gives himself up for our most crucial hour is Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today in this passage. In light of the cross, trust Jesus, not yourself, and love as you have been loved. In light of the cross, trust Jesus, not yourself, and love as you have been loved. Well, look, let's look at the first part of our passage, verse 18 to 30. And this section focuses on Jesus in a very tense situation. So I want you to imagine the final meal that Jesus shares with those closest to him, his 12 disciples. But amongst them, Jesus knows there is one who will betray him. And we're told in chapter 12 about Judas. Judas is the keeper of the money for the disciples, and he's a thief. Judas helps himself to the money collected. 
And it is this love for money that, that is the undoing of Judas. We see this in Matthew 26. The love of money drives G- Judas to hatch a plan, a plan that he thinks is a secret plan, to hand Jesus over to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. And no doubt Judas and the chief priests think that they're in control of these events. But Jesus says the very opposite to his puzzled disciples. I am in control, John 13, verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Judas' betrayal is under the sovereign control of God. In fact, according to Jesus, Psalm 41, written centuries before, is now being fulfilled by God. As Jesus speaks this very evening in the upper room, Jesus wants his disciples to reflect on these events as they unfold because he wants them to know who it is who is speaking to them, who it is they are to trust. It is no less than God himself. Jesus says he is the great I am at the end of verse 19. And that is the name that God revealed to Moses all the way back in the Old Testament in Exodus 3. I am who I am. God is the one without beginning or end, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely in control, the one who ruled over Pharaoh in order to save his people from slavery. And Jesus is now claiming this title for himself. I am who I am. Back in chapter 8, before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. It's a big picture of Jesus, isn't it? All-powerful, always in existence, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, Jesus, God the Son, is not a helpless victim. Everything is under his control, even this treacherous plan of Judas and the chief priests. Verse 20, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Jesus wants his disciples to trust him. At this most crucial hour, trust the one sent by God, trust the great I am. But these words are also written for future generations. The disciples will one day be sent by Jesus, and those who hear their testimony, just as we are doing today, we also are being challenged to trust Jesus. Uh, That's why John wrote down these words from Jesus. He has written them down for us to hear so that we would accept Jesus, the one sent by God. And not only do we see the greatness of Jesus here, but in this scene we also see the humanity of Jesus. Verse 21, we see that Jesus is distressed. He's troubled at what Judas is about to do. In John 11, at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus was so greatly distressed, he wept. 
In John 12, at the prospect of the coming hour of his death, Jesus is also troubled, he's distressed. Sin in this world distresses Jesus. Sin that results in death troubles him. Sin in his friend Judas breaks his heart. Keep in mind that Jesus has spent three years with these disciples, including Judas, who now sits so close to him that he could pass a piece of bread to him. And what happens next is both puzzling and poignant. Verse 22, the disciples are so puzzled, they can't comprehend that one of them would betray Jesus. Peter asks John, the one we believe is the one Jesus loved. And, and such is the intimacy between Jesus and John that John leans right up to Jesus and asks him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus dips the bread in the dish. And then we witness this incredibly poignant moment in the gospel. To offer a meal is significant in the culture of Jesus. It is to offer provision and protection to someone. To take someone into your home for a meal is to take them into your heart. So as Jesus offers this bread to Judas, it is as though Jesus gives Judas one last opportunity to come under his care, his eternal loving care. Much earlier in John's Gospel, we're presented with this choice. Chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You see, because of who Jesus is, don't miss the significance of the choice in front of Judas. It's, it's not just the choice for a piece of bread. God the Son offering Judas one last opportunity for eternity with him. And the eternal destiny of Judas hinges on this choice. Choose Jesus and you choose life. Reject Jesus and you bring judgment on yourself. And tragically, Judas makes his choice. Verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Judas took the bread, but in his heart, he rejects Jesus. Now I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm going to address a question that is often asked in relation to Judas. Who is to blame? Who is to blame for Judas's betrayal? Is it God, humans, or Satan? Is Judas someone in God's sovereign plan, someone used by God to fulfill God's purposes? Or is Judas completely responsible for his own choice to betray Jesus? Or in fact, is it Satan's fault for tempting Judas to do such a terrible thing? And you know what the Bible says? Yes to all three. The Bible doesn't say exactly how all three of these things fit together, but all are true. For example, verse 2, we see that Satan clearly has a role in prompting Judas. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. But we also see Judas's responsibility. Matthew 26, verse 24. 
Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. It is an active decision of Judas to betray Jesus. A decision that he is accountable and he will be judged for accordingly. But we also see God's sovereign hand in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. John 17. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We're told in the scriptures that these three things, human choice, God's sovereignty, Satan's activity, they're all at work in the death of Jesus. A good example is Acts 2. Verse 23, this man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Can you see what the Apostle Peter is saying? God was sovereign, he was in control over the death of Jesus, not out of control, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it was the responsibility of wicked men like Judas, like the chief priests, like Pilate, like the Roman soldiers, like me and you. We put Jesus to death on a cross at the prompting of Satan. Now this is hard for our heads to get around, and you're welcome to talk to me after the service to, to talk further about this. But you know, we lose a lot if it's not all three, don't we? You see, if we blame Satan, then God's sovereign control is limited, even over evil. Now if we say it's all Judas's fault, then we ignore the reality of Satan that he's active in the world, and that God is not sovereign over the world. Now, if we say that God is to blame because it's his purposes, then we, we become fatalistic, don't we? We have no choices, and, and we're not responsible for our choices. But the Bible doesn't say that. All things are true. The reality is Judas chooses to reject Jesus at Satan's prompting, but God is so great, the great I am, that even the wicked act of the cross is in Jesus' control. Okay, let's get back. Let's apply this. In light of the cross, trust Jesus and not yourself. Uh, ten years ago, 80 of us from this church were caught up in the bushfires of Black Saturday. Uh, we went on our annual church camp to the ESA campsite in Marysville, and the whole campsite that night was destroyed by fire. And what we didn't know at the time was that many people would die that night in Marysville. But by God's grace, all 80 of us were saved when we were evacuated to Alexandria. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Adam Humphreys, now a pastor at Darabin Presbyterian, he was a ministry trainee at our church at that time. Adam was coordinating that camp, and Adam did a remarkable job of leading us to safety. Once Adam heard about the fires, he calmly organized all of us to meet together, and he set a plan for us to evacuate as a group. Uh, the campers without kids were to pack their things first, and then go and help the families to pack. And then together we were to drive in convoy to Alexandria, leaving no one behind. You see, we couldn't go to Melbourne because the black spur had been cut off due to the fires. And I remember there was this crucial period of time where it could have gone either way. 
where instead of calm organization, the group could have descended into blind panic. And there were people contemplating doing their own thing and not sticking with the group, driving themselves or their families away from the camp to save themselves. And you see, instead of trusting Adam, it could have been every man for himself. And I'm sure if that happened, some in our group would have died that night. In the same way, trusting Jesus or trusting yourself is a matter of life and death with even greater consequences because it is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Judas chose to trust himself, to formulate his own plan, to look after his own life, a plan that involved rejecting his Lord, and in the end, 30 pieces of silver cost him everything, eternally. I wonder what area of life you struggle to trust Jesus in. Like Judas, are you struggling to trust him with your money? Maybe you're struggling to trust him in your singleness or with your marriage. Maybe you're struggling to trust him with your work. And I wonder what you're willing to compromise. Your integrity, your relationship with those you love, your faith, your eternity with Jesus. And what I find sobering in the example of Judas is that he spent three years with Jesus. He saw everything Jesus did. He heard everything Jesus taught. And he even fooled all the other disciples. But in the end, he didn't fool Jesus. Some of us have followed Jesus for years. And we must learn from the example of Judas. Because in the end, we aren't going to fool Jesus. If we're not willing to trust him and obey him. And you see, it's not just trusting Jesus in that final hour of your life. It's about trusting Jesus with all the small decisions that make up your life, that lead to that final hour. You see, there are thousands of decisions in life where we either choose to trust Jesus or choose not to trust Jesus. Judas would have heard this, um, he would have heard this promise. Sorry. Judas would have heard this promise from Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 6. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so when Judas was presented with the collection... Judas had a choice, didn't he? Do I trust Jesus? Do I trust his promise to look after me, to provide for me? Or do I trust myself and take from this collection for myself? Judas chose to trust himself with those decisions and therefore in the end, in that final hour, he chose to trust himself. And we're presented with those choices every day, aren't we? Do I take that extra shift for just a bit more money or do I meet with God's people? 
Do I, do I bend the truth on my tax return? Or do I trust God to provide for me? Uh, do I give in to lust for a moment of pleasure? Or do I trust Jesus with my sex life? Friends, who do you think will be there for you in your final hour, on your deathbed? Who is it who walked the path of the cross for you, that you will never be alone in fear, in grief? Who is the great I am who is in control of every moment of your life? Cometh the darkest hour, Cometh the man, Jesus. Trust him. Don't trust yourself. Let's look at the second part of our passage in verses 31 to 38. In light of the cross, love as you have been loved. Well, Judas takes the bread and he goes into the night and the wheels are set into motion to put Jesus to death. And this seeming triumph for Satan will not be the case, Jesus says. Verse 40, 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glory, glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Well, Judas and the chief priests think that they are in control, that the death of Jesus is their plan, but the cross is the very hour of God's glory. Both God the Father and God the Son are working towards their ultimate plan. Peter didn't realize this at the time, but later on he comes to realize this. This is what Peter says in Acts 2, once the Spirit opens his eyes to the cross. Acts 2 verse 36, Therefore let Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. At the cross, we see the glory of God, God's justice, God's mercy, God's faithfulness to his promises, God's grace towards sinners, God's complete and utter lordship over all things. We see the love between God the Father, Son and Spirit, we, as each one works together to save a sinful world. The cross is the vision of God's glory. Isn't that amazing? But at a personal level, we can only imagine what Jesus is going through. The distress of Judas betraying him, the continued lack of understanding of his disciples, the pain of the cross that still lays ahead of him. And you might think that, that Jesus would be consumed with all these things about himself, and you'd be wrong, for even at this time, Jesus gently cares for others. Verse 33, my children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus affectionately calls his disciples my children. It's the only time he does it in the Gospel of John. 
He cares for them. He explains what the cross will mean for them. Separation for a time. And we're going to see in the next chapter, Jesus leaves them so he can prepare a place for them so that they will join him. But right now they cannot follow him to the cross. That is his work alone. But they will follow him to the place that he prepares for his beloved children. On the basis of this love that Jesus has for them, Jesus gives them a new command to love. Jesus in his ministry has already told people what the old command was. Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But now with his disciples and all who follow him, Jesus is establishing a new command. Now to love was not new, but they are now to love at a new standard as I have loved you. Now how does Jesus love his disciples? We're told from last week's passage, to the full extent he loved them. He loved them by washing their feet. He will love them fully when he lays down his life for them on the cross. The love as Jesus demonstrated in the cross is to be the standard to which we are to love one another. Now, John didn't understand this fully at the time, but later on, as he writes the letter of 1 John, he understands the meaning of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It is the cross that forms the basis of our love for one another. And John unpacks this. Think for a moment about the depth of your own sin. Now think then of the collective depth of all our sin. And think what that sin deserves from a holy God. Now think about how determined God is to reconcile us to himself, that he sends his son whom he loves. Think of the great cost that Jesus' son gets pierced to the cross for our sins. Think about God's wrath being poured out on Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. That is love, isn't it, friends? That is love without compare. And that is now the love we are being challenged to show to one another. A new command, a new standard, but it's also for a new community. The disciples are going to form the seed of a new community of God's people, the people who receive God's Spirit, a people who will be in fellowship with God, the Spirit, Son and Father, a people who will worship not in a place, but who will worship in spirit and in truth, a people who will come from every nation, tongue, tribe, just as is gathered here today. And this new command and this new community are to provide a new witness to the world. The world will see the love that exists between the members of this community and they will acknowledge that the love comes from God. But clearly for these disciples it's not happening yet. They don't understand verse 37. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Again, I I think Peter gets a hard time. I sympathize with Peter. Here is the guy like me, like us, who speaks before he thinks. And we saw last week, he didn't understand why Jesus had to wash his feet. And here again, Peter has no idea what Jesus is facing at the cross. Jesus knows Peter's heart better than Peter. Cometh the hour, denieth the man. At the crucial time, when given the opportunity to stand for Jesus, Peter is going to chicken out. And what Peter does, now it's not, it's not to the same magnitude as what Judas does, but again, in, in Peter's case, trusting yourself doesn't work, does it? Why doesn't it work in Peter's case? You know why? I, I think, here's my opinion, Peter loves without the cross. Peter doesn't recognize how much he needs the love of the cross. And so he thinks he can love Jesus in his own strength. And in the end, he loves himself more than he loves Jesus. In light of the cross, love as you have been loved. Friends, I want to encourage you not to settle for a lesser love. What do I mean by a lesser love? A love that you can muster in your own strength. Let the love of Jesus be the engine of your love for others. You cannot love properly in your own strength. I know that from experience. Sometimes we we may even look to the other person we love to drive our love, to find that strength to love. But sometimes we look at them and go, no way, I'm not going to love you. They cannot provide the motivation for us to love. Find the strength to love by looking to the cross. Look to the one who loved you first. The more I trust in Jesus' love for me, the more I will be able to love others. Uh, The Staines family were Australian missionaries to India. In 1999, after more than 30 years working with lepers, Graham and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were burnt to death by Hindu fundamentalists while they were sleeping in their car. The remarkable thing is that Gladys, Graham's wife, and their daughter, Esther, remained in India five more years to continue ministering to leprosy patients. And what is even more remarkable is that Gladys was willing to forgive those responsible. In an interview, Gladys said, as far as Esther and I are concerned, we have forgiven. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. The Bible teaches you to forgive. Has Jesus not set the example. And in that same interview, Gladys attributes the strength to forgive to God. I've been through several experiences in life where I know that God has been there with me. I've never doubted he's been there with us. I've been thankful for that, Gladys said. Friends, you can only love like that when you have been loved like that. 
And you find that love by looking to Jesus, by looking to his cross. And, and friends, th- this is the love that the world needs. This is the love that the world is longing for. This is what Gladys said in that interview. One, I've heard many stories of people who've come to Christ after seeing the way that I've accepted it all. I heard this one from someone in a neighboring state who was distributing tracts. One man who received a tract said, is this the same Jesus that Gladys Staines believes in? Yes, the pastor said, then I want to know that Jesus, the man stated. But you see, it's not just our love for enemies, is it? What's amazing is Jesus says here, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is the love of followers of Jesus for other followers of Jesus that will speak to the world. And, and sometimes I find that hard to believe because I think we're pretty bad at it, aren't we? I'm pretty bad at it. And I, I was reminded of the truth of this. In one of the Bible study groups here that I helped to lead, there is this lady who has become a devoted follower of Jesus in the last few years. She's a beautiful lady. This lady first started coming to our mainly music group through her daughter-in-law and through her grandchildren. She came for many years to mainly music, and then we invited her to come and study the Bible. And she met Jesus, and her life changed. And when she shared with us why she came to believe in Jesus, why she came to the Bible study, one of the reasons she gave us, it was the love of the women who run mainly music, the love they have for each other and for me. She had never come across in all the years that she worked with women in her workplace of love like that. And in the end, she met the source of that love, Jesus. Let me say to you, because you may not realize, but for all of you who follow Jesus, the way you conduct your marriage, the way you love your children, the way that you love each other, speaks so much to the world. Friends, in light of the cross, trust Jesus, not yourself, and love as you've been loved. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, as we see Jesus in this final hour, over this final meal, Father, we can't even imagine what what he was going through for us. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for the great I Am, the great sovereign God. We give you thanks, Father, for Jesus. We thank you that all things are in his hand. We thank you that he is worthy of our trust. Help us, Father, to trust him this week. Help us, Father, to trust him today. Help us to trust him with all the decisions and choices we face. And Father, in our final hour, in our desperate need, Father, help us to trust him. Gracious Father, we have experienced a love without compare. A love that sees the worst of us 
and gives us the very best. Father, help us to love like this, with courage, with perseverance, with integrity, with the same love you showed us in Jesus. Help us to do that when the people we find hard to love. Help us to do that, Father, when there is nothing in us that would drive us to love. Help us. Help us to do all this for the glory of Jesus. In his name. Amen.